When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, 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 call sheet listeners. Here we are with some real football to talk about. This is this is episode 22 of the call sheet, but the first one where we actually have real NFL football to talk about. Been doing this show for the better part of five months now. And and now finally we get to talk about some real action that, that took place on the field. And we're going to get to all that in just a moment. It's going to be a great show. So welcome, everybody, here on the Fans First Sports Network to the show. I'm your host, Kevin Smith. And like I said, this is episode 22 of The Call Sheet, a show that focuses primarily on the game of football from a coaching or schematic perspective. And it looks at the game through the eyes of a coach. I've been coaching myself for almost 30 years, uh, and I try to just sort of impart a little bit of what I've learned along the way and what I continue to learn. I can, I can say this, that is I continue to coach the sport and I continue to have the opportunity to coach against really knowledgeable fellow coaches and meet with extremely knowledgeable individuals and observe the game and go to clinics and all that stuff. It's incredible. The amount there is to know that every time I think like that, I have a pretty good grasp of the game. I come in contact with somebody who delivers sort of a a doctorate on a very particular thing. And I learned so much more from it. So it's the old uh, peeling back the layers of the onion kind of thing, man. It just keeps getting more and more intricate, more and more interesting. And it's going to be a fascinating football season. So we're going to talk about all that in just a minute. But first, episode 22. That means we're going to look at a player who wore the number 22 and talk about that individual briefly here in the beginning of the show. And there's some great NFL players who have worn the number 22, but I'm actually not going to opt for a, a real NFL player. I'm going to opt for a fictitious player. And that player is Paul Wrecking Crew of the Mean Machine. And those of you who, who uh, are Burt Reynolds fans or who are fans of football movies, you know exactly who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the movie The Longest Yard, the original uh, I can't count the Adam Sandler 2005 remake. That was a disgrace. I mean, come on. There's just certain movies that they, they do it so well the first time. And you just, just leave them alone. And I thought that about, about The Longest Yard. I thought that it was such a compelling movie, not just about football. The football stuff was great. And we'll talk about why in a minute. But the story itself, first of all, most movies about prison tend to be fairly compelling because when you're on the outside uh, looking at prison life, it's it's intriguing. It's not something you ever want to experience. I've never been to prison and I don't ever want to go to prison, but it's a fascinating subculture that I think people have uh, a curiosity about. And so there's that. And then you mix that that football element with it. You have this phenomenal story of 
the prisoners being given an opportunity to play the guards. And if ever there was uh, a matchup worth watching, it would have been, it would be prisoners versus guards in football. But you get, you get the great Paul crew character who in the movie is a former NFL player who's gone to jail uh, after a, a bender in which he's crashed a car and led the cops on a long car chase and destroyed a whole bunch of property. But he's got a sordid past and he's, and he's probably most famous for being an all-American quarterback, but at the same time, throwing his teammates under the bus by, uh, by betting against his own team in a game and then throwing the game. And, and that, of course, is a bone of contention with people in the prison. But really what makes the movie so interesting, of course, is that Burt Reynolds was a real football player. Burt Reynolds, the actor who passed away in 20, 2018 and made some great movies, some goofy movies. Uh, some funny movies and some poignant ones as well. But Burt Reynolds played football at Florida State. He was a running back at Florida State in the 1950s and a pretty darn good one on full scholarship there. Ha- had been a starter as a sophomore until he blew out his knee uh, in, a, in a car crash, of, of all things. And so that when they shoot the football scenes in the longest yard, which originally was made in the early 1970s, and it included among the cast of characters who were playing uh, or acting as football players in the movie. It included NFL stars like Joe Cap and Ray Nitschke and some great actors who had, who had also been good athletes so that the football scenes in that movie are actually believable. When, when they've got guys running post routes, they have actors who are really professional players but they're running post routes, you know, like it looks like a post route. It's so very different from some of the fluffier football movies made a long while afterwards, like uh, like the program or the, I think the one that really jumps out at me is Varsity Blues, where, where James Vanderbeek, who's probably best known for his role in Dawson's Creek, is a, a star quarterback, despite the fact that when you watch him attempt to play quarterback, you're 98% convinced he's never thrown a football in his life. I think maybe the worst athletic performance by an actor trying to mimic uh, a a high-profile athlete was when Leonardo DiCaprio played Jim Carroll in the movie The Basketball Diaries, which was a a really heavy movie, man, about a former all-city New York City point guard named Jim Carroll who had been an all-city player, an absolute playground legend in New York, tremendous basketball player, who then fell into a horrible heroin addiction and you know, kind of got famous writing about it. He, he became sort of a, a, a spoken word poet and an author. And, they, and he wrote, a, he wrote a, uh, an autobiography called The Basketball Diaries. They turned it into a movie. And Leonardo DiCaprio, a really young Leonardo DiCaprio, played Jim Carroll. And again, I'm fairly certain Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio had never dribbled a basketball before acting in that movie. And he's trying to portray an all city point guard. So that's the nice thing about Burt Reynolds in the longest yard is that you don't have to uh, get past his acting in those football scenes that he's a football player. And finally, it's just such a great morality play because the way the movie is written is here you have the guy who screwed over his teammates now in the movie 
being given a shot at redemption to lead the prisoners to a big win over the guards, who of course are the bad guys in the movie. And he's offered at halftime when it looks like the the prisoners are giving the guards a really good game. He's, he's offered at halftime an opportunity to, to, to get out of jail by the warden if he'll just throw the game. And you get this great morality play with a really satisfying ending that underscores the title of the movie and the, and the tremendous closing scene where Burt Reynolds seems to be what he's walking across the field. And it, it seems to be that he's heading for the exit and the warden uh, who's the bad guy in the movie is, is urging one of his head guards to shoot him. He hands him a rifle and he tells him he's trying to escape and he, and he's yelling, shoot, shoot. And as, as the guard is raising his, the rifle and, and, and about to pull the trigger, Paul Crew bends down and grabs the football off the field and walks back and he hands it to the warden and the guard hands the gun to the warden and says game ball. It's just a, just a great closing scene. So anyway, my tribute to, to number 22, Paul wrecking crew and the mean machine on their tremendous upset victory of the guards in 1973s or 74s, the longest yard. All right. I know that people are more interested in the real football and not the fake football that took place. And there was plenty of that. And we're, we're going to focus a little bit on the games themselves and some of the storylines uh, in the second half of this show. But before we get to that, and before we take a break, I want to focus on some coaching decisions. This is, this is a show called The Call Sheet, after all. And it's a show that really shines a spotlight on coaching. And there were some really, really interesting fourth down coaching decisions in week one that I wanted to talk about a little bit. What's, what is a fourth down philosophy? What's, what's a coach's fourth down philosophy going in? It's really sort of one of those situational elements of football that you have to have a plan for. You have to have a pretty good idea how you want to attack fourth downs throughout various stages of the game. And then you got to have plays that you like to fit those situations. I don't think you can spontaneously stumble into fourth down decisions. I think you have to have prepared for them, both on your call sheet and in the week during practice. And if you're going to make a decision to go for it on fourth down, you need to dial up a play that you feel very comfortable calling. So let's look at some fourth down examples from week one. In the, in the Thursday night opener, a thrilling game between the Detroit Lions and the Kansas City Chiefs that the, the young upstart Lions were able to come away with a 21-20 win. In the closing minutes of that game, clinging to that one-point lead, Detroit faced a fourth and two on the Kansas City 45-yard line with two minutes and 33 seconds left. Now, Kansas City had all three of their timeouts remaining, and they had the two-minute warning. And so the Lions, when faced with the calculus as to whether or not to go for it, probably had the easiest of the three decisions that we're going to look at here. Because their decision basically was this. The ball's on the 45. If we punt here, We'll be, we'll, we'll be fortunate to down it inside the 20. There's a decent chance that the punt could carry into the end zone and now is going to have to be brought back out to the 20-yard line, in which case we've only gained 25 yards of field position and we've only ticked off six or seven, a, a negligible number of seconds off the clock and Kansas City is still going to have three timeouts plus the two-minute warning and all they need to do is kick a field goal to win. The odds in that situation, 
two plus minutes to go, three timeouts plus a two minute warning, need, needing only to drive your team about 45 yards or so to get into field goal range on a, a kick with a good kicker in Harrison Butker that's going to win the football game. That's a pretty easy decision, I think, for the Lions. You go for it. And Detroit did. They went for it there and they didn't make it. And they turned the ball over to Kansas City. And so now the Chiefs were in great field position, but it was a worthwhile gamble because when you when you considered the calculus, you, you essentially understood that the punt wasn't worth it in that situation. So Cincinnati takes over at their own 45, and now they only have to drive about 20 yards to be in a uh, reliable situation from a field goal perspective. But rather than drive those 20 yards, which I think pretty much everybody watching the game expected, they... They threw three incompletions and they had a holding penalty. They went backwards and they found themselves with a fourth and 20 on their own 35 yard line. And then on that, after deciding that they would go for it on that fourth and 20, they, they promptly jumped off sides and it was fourth and 25 now. So now you're the chiefs. It's fourth and 25, 209 to play. You still have all three timeouts. And if you punt the ball in this situation, it's probably not going to take nine seconds. So you're also going to get the two-minute warning after Detroit's first play. And if, and if it's just a normal punt, a punt that nets somewhere between 40 and 45 yards, the Lions are going to get the ball around their own 25-yard line. And with all three timeouts and most likely the two-minute warning, if you stop them, you're going to get the ball back somewhere in the neighborhood of 130 to 140 to play probably around your own 30-yard line, maybe maybe a little deeper than that. But you're again, you're only going to need about 40, maybe 45 yards to get into field goal range. It felt like in that situation, fourth and 25, how many teams are going to be able to make fourth and 25 in that situation? It felt like Kansas City should have punted the football. They didn't. They went for it. Now, there's probably two reasons why they went for it. One is Patrick Mahomes. And if you're Andy Reid and you've got Patrick Mahomes, you probably feel pretty good about your chances in just about any situation. Interestingly, after that fourth and 20, when the, 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 the ball was snapped originally and the play began until the referees blew it dead. And when they blew it dead, Patrick Mahomes kind of threw the ball into the ground. But then he immediately looked over at Andy Reid and he gave the with his like the twirling finger signal that fairly universally means run it again, run it again. He must have seen something he liked and felt fairly confident in the look that he was getting. And Andy Reid said, okay. I mean, in, in that instance, he turned it over to Patrick Mahomes and said, you know, I guess I trust him here. And amazingly, if you watch that fourth and 25 play, Mahomes threaded a ball back across his body, rolling to his left, and then threaded a ball back across his body towards the right hash. That had a chance, had a chance to be caught. It looked, it looked like it went, it was high and his receiver had to jump for it, but it looked like it went right through his hands. So if there's anybody who could make that play, you know, it's, it's Patrick Mahomes. But Andy Reid may have flashed back, way back to 2004, when as the head coach of the Philadelphia Eagles, in a playoff game at home against the Green Bay Packers, with the game on the line and the Eagles trailing, needing a field goal to win, they were pinned deep in their own territory, facing fourth and 26. And Donovan McNabb, in that situation, threaded a ball up the seam to the people's champ, Freddie Mitchell, 
Freddie Mitchell, who nicknamed himself both the People's Champ and Fred X because he always delivers. Uh, and he and he hit Mitchell up the seam for a first down, and that made Freddie Mitchell a hero in Philadelphia sports lore, uh, and you know earned him, I guess, nicknames that I can remember. So there you go. So maybe there was a little bit of Andy Reid flashback to that scenario. Uh, either way, it didn't work out, and Detroit was able to run the ball for a first down and run the clock out. So, so I understand Detroit's decision to go on the fourth and two, but the subsequent fourth and 25 is a little tougher for me to swallow. I just think that the, the prudent play in that situation was the punt. And then if we fast forward to Sunday, Reed's former team, the Philadelphia Eagles, had an interesting decision to make, leading 25-20 to 20 in New England with a fourth and two on the New England 44 and a minute 57 to go. And New England, with one timeout left, needing a touchdown to win the game, the Eagles chose to go for it. And they went and they didn't make it. And they turned the ball over to Mac Jones. And Jones was able to drive the Patriots down to about the 25 yard line, but they ran out on downs. And the Eagles kneeled out the clock to escape with a 25 20 win. And that's, that's maybe the toughest decision of the three. I thought Detroit's decision was pretty easy. I thought Kansas City's decision. Uh, was the one I disagree with the most. And the Philly decision is a tough one because you can make an argument either way. And both those arguments essentially uh, lie on your faith in the Philadelphia defense. You could argue, yeah, let's go for it on fourth and two here because if we don't get it and we turn the ball over to the Patriots at their own 44 with a minute 50 to go and only one timeout left, we think our defense can stop them. And the counter argument says, well, why not punt the ball down, right? Punt it down, hopefully pin them inside the 20, and now make them go 85, maybe 90 yards for that game-winning touchdown with only one timeout left. Do you, do you think that Mac Jones can do that against the Philly D? And that's an interesting argument as well. As well. Uh, either way, I think the, the Eagles felt confident in their defense, but they also most likely felt confident in their offense to convert that fourth and two, the Eagles uh, had fumbled the ball after one play on their preceding possession. But the three drives before then had gone nine plays, 11 plays, and 13 plays and all resulted in field goals. And I think Philadelphia felt, hey, we're moving the ball. Let's, let's just end the game right now. So what's the research say? Let's, let's talk about that real quick before we go to break. You know, the research really says to go for it. Uh, in the Detroit and Philadelphia scenarios, a study by the New York Times, which was published in 2019, showed that you know punts were not are not as valuable anymore to to teams because offenses are just so much better. Points per game are up, yards per game are up, kickers are way better. So if you punt the, a team deep, they don't need to go as far as they once did to get into field goal range. And if you crunch the numbers, the numbers lend some credence to that. For example, last season, well, before I get to that, let me say this. The new, that New York Times study is really aggressive when it comes to going for it on fourth down. According to that study, on fourth and one, teams should always go for it any place on the field starting at their own nine-yard line. So if you're at least at your own nine-yard line, you should go for it on fourth and one. That means if it's fourth and one on your own 10, the numbers say go for it. It's going to take a pretty daring coach to trust those numbers and trust his team in that situation. But if you're a metrics guy, then that's that's what it says. 
Fourth and two, you, you should go for it anywhere beyond your own 28. And fourth and three, you should go for it anywhere beyond your own 40. So in both of those scenarios, the Lions and Eagles were certainly justified in their decisions. And then there's one more statistic to throw at you real quick. In 2021, NFL teams on fourth and one converted 77% of the time. Now on fourth and two, that dropped to 59%, but six out of 10, roughly, is still pretty good. And so in both of those fourth and two situations in Detroit and Philly, I think they felt pretty good. Neither one worked out, but it's hard to criticize the decision. So you want to make the big bucks? You know, you want to be the guy, and they, they say heavy is the head that wears the crown. Well, you want to wear the crown and be the head coach. You got to have not just a, you know, a know what you want to do in these situations, but you got to have the right play because much like I'm kind of doing right now, you're going to get second guessed. And I wouldn't say I'm second guessing, I'm analyzing, but people are going to talk about that decision. Those fourth down decisions are crucial. They often decide games. And in these instances, they really did decide the games, just not in that particular moment for the Lions and the Eagles. Okay, so we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to look at a couple things. Uh, Pez's picks. My man Bill Pezda was on last week. He picked six games for us against the spread. Let's look at how he did. And Pez is not going to be with us, but he'll be on again shortly uh, to talk a little bit more about, about uh, the lines and, and some of the success that he had. And, and then we'll look at week two very briefly and focus on the most interesting game of week two and the one I think is going to be the most compelling. So come on back after the break. back to the call sheet Kevin Smith with you and we are now going to turn our attention to some of the week two games and and look at well some of the more interesting storylines in week two probably the the game I'm most excited about before we do though real quick though let's let's talk about my my man Pez last week on the show we debuted a segment called Pez's Picks where my buddy Bill Pezda uh, who was a Lifelong soccer player and a really good soccer coach, but also helped my team, my, my football team here at Ocean City High School, as our kicking coach for a year. And he did a great job, man. Our kicker was perfect on field goals. He missed one, actually. I take that back. He missed one kick. But, man, you might have to asterisk that kick because I sent him out for a 46-yard field goal in the sleet at the end of a half. And uh, and he missed that one. And, I mean, pretty unfair on a on a high school kid in that situation. I think Pez was mad that we, uh, we ruined his perfect kicking record, but, uh, but Bill's really good at, at picking games. And we had him on last week. We had him pick six games for us against the spread. And he did pretty well. He went four and two. He was four and one heading into Monday night's game. And he had Buffalo covering against the jets and four plays in when Aaron Rodgers went down, boy, that looked like a slam dunk. Uh, but New York managed to pull that game out on a on the on the very rare walk off punt return, and so Pez finished four and two on the week. He gave you as uh, his in his winners. He gave you Cleveland over Cincinnati. He gave you Green Bay over Chicago. He gave you Philly over New England, and probably the strongest pick of the week. He gave you 
those young Detroit Lions over the Kansas City Chiefs. And his two losers were uh, the Jets coming back to beat Buffalo. He had the Bills. And I, I joked with him. I said, man, you're pandering to the Steelers crowd here. This is, you know, this is a strong Steelers crowd. And you're pandering to them by picking Pittsburgh over San Francisco. And that did not work out well. That was a, an, an epic beatdown by the 49ers over the Steelers. So, so four and two, that's a pretty good start when you're picking games against the spread. And we're going to have Pez back on here soon to keep giving, giving games, right? And take his advice. Don't take his advice. But uh, all we can do is offer it. But if you did last week, man, you probably put some money in your pocket. So, okay. So let's, let's, let's talk about one other element of last week's games. And if we had to like think about the thing that probably dominated the headlines from the week one games, unfortunately, it had to be injuries. Obviously, what happened with Aaron Rodgers is unfortunate and really kind of a, a sad for the league because I think whether you like Aaron Rodgers, dislike Aaron Rodgers, no matter how you feel about him, it's impossible to deny how good he's, he is. And, and the intrigue as to whether or not he remains the Aaron Rodgers that everybody anticipates. And to see him do that in New York under that glare with all of that attention would have been fascinating. And there were concerns about the, the Jets offensive line. And one of, the, one of the reasons that Pez gave on the show last week for picking the Bills is he just said the Jets offensive line is not very good. And you saw Aaron Rodgers. He ran four plays, and three of them were dropbacks. And all three of those, he was under pressure immediately. And on the last one, obviously, uh, they got to him, and he tore his Achilles, and he's done. And it's really interesting to see. It will be really interesting to see if he is done for good or if Aaron Rodgers, at 40 years old, tries to come back from a torn Achilles in New York, he's under contract with the Jets for one more season next year. And that'll be really, really interesting uh, to, to witness. The other interesting element of that will be what happens with Zach Wilson. So now here, young Zach Wilson, who was the number two pick in the draft a couple of years ago, and everybody expected him to be the future in New York. But his first two years did not go well. And they prompted the Jets to make the move for Rodgers last offseason. And now Zach Wilson's back as the starter. And while he didn't exactly light it up for the Jets on Monday night, they got an awful lot of help from Josh Allen turning the ball over. Uh, Wilson now will have a, a chance to, to reclaim the starting job. And it'll be really, really interesting. What if he plays great football? What if Zach Wilson leads the Jets to the playoffs? That's certainly not out of the question. I mean, they've got a tremendous supporting cast. They've got a good defense. You saw what they did to, Josh Allen and the Bills' potent offense on Monday night. I mean, they might be a winning, ugly kind of team, but it would be really interesting to see if Zach Wilson does enough for the Jets, uh, for them to maybe not be that interested in an Aaron Rodgers comeback at 40 or 41 years old. I can't, I can't remember how old he's going to be before next season, but at least 40, coming off of the torn Achilles. So it's a really interesting situation at the quarterback there with the Jets. But a couple of other high-profile injuries. The Browns lost Jack Conklin, uh, starting offensive tackle, Pro Bowl player, probably one of the best in the business at his position. 
And you know, Conklin went down and he's going to be done for the season. And that's going to really put a strain on their offensive line. Uh, Cleveland, really impressive opening day win over the Cincinnati Bengals. And it really, the offense wasn't great. Deshaun Watson struggled. It was a wet, rainy, ugly day. And Watson's numbers weren't great. He missed on a bunch of throws. He, he, the, the enduring image, I think, of, of for Cleveland fans of Watson's performance on Sunday was of him just short hopping balls at his receiver's feet, which is not what they wanted to see. But but the Browns did some good things in the run game, and they were dominant on defense, absolutely dominant. They, they just befuddled Joe Burrow, who went 14 out of 31 for less than 100 yards passing. That's mind-boggling that they were able to hold Joe Burrow to those numbers. And what they did, they really took a page out of the Steelers book from a year ago because what Cleveland did is they completely changed the way in which they defended um, Burrow. They, they in, in, in five previous meetings with Joe Burrow, they generally blitzed the heck out of him. They, they blitzed him a lot. They brought a lot of pressure from a lot of different looks and a lot of different angles. And they'd gone four and one in those five games. And so I'm sure that the Bengals felt that they were going to get more of the same. They were going to get another heavy dose of blitzes and pressures. And instead, Cleveland fell back into coverage and played a lot of zone. Sometimes they dropped eight guys. And they really just kind of said to Burrow, like, on a wet, rainy day, we're going to make you be accurate with the football uh, in in the zones and and find the seams. And uh, they, they confused him. And I said they took a page out of Pittsburgh's book because a year ago on opening day, the Steelers forced five turnovers from Burrow, four interceptions and a fumble by doing something similar, really just sort of breaking all of their tendencies from all the times that they'd ever played Burrow before and using the extra preparation that you get in the summertime to throw some completely different looks at him. So obviously that's a winning formula against Joe Burrow in week one. But the challenge now for Cleveland will be to get better on offense. The offense wasn't great. And now they lose arguably their best lineman in Jack Conklin. And he's going to be replaced with mammoth rookie Dewan Jones, the rookie out of Ohio State who's six foot eight. And 345 pounds. That's a big human being. And Dewan Jones is not going to get an easy start in, in his first professional start or an easy matchup, I should say, because they draw the Steelers and TJ Watt. And while the Steelers were woeful on Sunday against San Francisco, TJ Watt was his normal menacing self with three sacks. And he tied the Steelers all-time franchise record for total sacks. Uh, and so he'll be fired up under the under the bright lights on, of Monday Night Football. That's a tough opening assignment for Dewan Jones. And one more, one more in the AFC, as a matter of fact. So these are these are three three really devastating injuries to some pretty darn good football players in the AFC. And the third one is JK Dobbins who just can't catch a break. The Baltimore running back is going to miss a season again in his four-year career now. He's missed over 40 some games, which is about 60 some percent of the total games uh, this time, like Rogers, it's an Achilles and he's done for the season. And Baltimore is another team that really re- leans heavily on their run game. And it looks like they'll have to go in house here. They'll probably elevate either justice Hill or Gus Edwards, most likely both in some sort of uh, running back by committee approach 
to take Dobbins's carries. Uh, but Baltimore, I mean, of the three injuries, I think I think Rodgers is obviously the most high profile. I think Conklin's injury is the one that could have the biggest impact potentially because we don't know who who Aaron Rodgers was going to be on the field. And, and Dobbins is the one that probably can be mitigated the best because Baltimore's largely been without him over the last several years. They've, they've learned how to adjust without him. So you feel bad for that young man. He just can't seem to stay healthy and really get his career untracked. Okay, so now, ready? Let, let's pick one game in week two, right? As we get into our last segment here, let's, get, let's pick one game from week two that's going to be really interesting. I mean, there's a lot of interesting matchups. There's some good divisional stuff on tap. Uh, you know, I'm not a huge fan of the divisional games early. I like to see those games later in the year. But still, you know, you have some good divisional football. Burrow's going to get a chance to redeem himself against the Ravens at home. Um, that, but the game that I think is going to be most fascinating, I mean, one more that one more divisional game that'll be really good will be Indy at, Indy at Houston, two, two poor football teams. But two of the rookie starters in the NFL going against each other, Anthony Richardson against C.J. Stroud, that'll be interesting. But the game I think will be fascinating is Kansas City at Jacksonville. And that'll be a fascinating game because, A, it's a rematch of the divisional playoff last year where Jacksonville really gave Kansas City a game, a, a better game than most expected them to. It's a fascinating coaching matchup. You have two former Philadelphia Eagles coaches, Andy Reid, taking on Doug Peterson, and they're two really, really innovative offensive minds. Uh, you also have the matchup just sort of from a, a challenger versus champion standpoint. Kansas City is the champ and maybe a little wounded right now. They're 0-1. Jacksonville is the challenger. They didn't play great in week one. They kind of let the Colts hang around before they pulled away. Uh, but they're one and zero, and they and I think that if you're the Jaguars, you feel like right now you can score points with Kansas City. As a matter of fact, if we're looking at the the rosters, the the Jags' offense may be more explosive, and that's hard to believe that you're, that you're saying that. But but they outside of my I don't outside of Miami, I don't know if there's a faster offense in the NFL, right? With Christian Kirk and Calvin Ridley and Travis at the end and. Travis, uh, Trevor Lawrence playing quarterback. That's a that's an explosive, high-powered offense. And when you look at the Chiefs, they were clearly missing some of their weapons, both literally, uh, you know, and kind of figuratively last week against Detroit. I mean, they were they were missing some of the guys who who have have moved on, right? Obviously, the Tyreek Hills. They won a Super Bowl without him, but they you know losing guys like McCole Hardman and Juju Smith Schuster. And then having to play without Travis Kelsey, that obviously hurt them. Uh, poor Kadarius Tony really, really struggled in that game and is going to be uh, probably the target of some ire of Chiefs fans. Kansas City just didn't look like the Kansas City offense we've seen for the last four or five years on Monday night. And it could be a one-off. And they might look like world beaters again on Sunday down in Jacksonville. Jacksonville doesn't have the most potent offense in the world. But if they play like they did, or even reasonably like they did against Detroit, they're probably going to lose again because Jacksonville's going to score some points. They put up 34 last week. They're a team uh, that has a great offensive mind as head coach and uh, a young quarterback on the rise and a ton of weapons at the skill positions. 
And that'll be fascinating. Can Kansas City avoid going 0-2? And can the Jags get to 2-0? and And really begin to make some noise as a contender in the AFC. So if there's one week two game that's really worthy of our attention, I think it's that one. Okay, that's going to do it for us here on episode 22 of the call sheet. It's been great talking coaching strategy and real football and some of the games. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to be, have an opportunity to do this. And this young season is just getting started. So uh, for the next 16 weeks and then the playoffs, boy, we're going to have some great conversations. So, hey, man, take the ride with me, all right? Uh, I enjoy it, and I hope that you guys do as well. So have a great week. Good luck to your teams, and uh, we'll have more to talk about next week. Take care, everybody.